You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, Blogging Heads Nation. It is August. August, August, August. Which means it's time for a much belated edition of Dresbert. Uh, I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. I am also the author of Spoiler Alerts for the Washington Post. I'm Heather Hurlbert, run the New Models of Policy Change Initiative at New America and write for New York Magazine. And um, Dan, we have we have lots and lots of super serious uh, content to on uh, national security and uh, foreign policy this morning, but um, there is an important baseball matter that we need to take note of because although you and I have many differences on this matter, we are entirely united. Dan, how many games are the Red Sox up on the Yankees in the AL East? Five and a half. It's five and a half. Five and a half, and and particularly a sweet victory last night as, you know, our 20-year-old uh, rookie third baseman, Rafael Devers, became the first lefty since 2011 to homer off a role as Chapman in order to tie the score in the ninth inning. I actually hurt my shoulder cheering. I was I was so happy about that. Dan has sustained a wound for the cause, ladies and gentlemen. All right, well, moving right along before we get too gloaty, because after all, this is the Red Sox we're talking about. Um, over the weekend, uh, the uh, the thesis that um, the thesis that an axis of adults could uh, came out of the national security world and and could could and or would manage, control, constrain um, the Trump White House took two more blows. I mean, if you if you thought it wasn't dead already, I say I thought it was dead already, but um, I noticed that anytime something bad happens, there's a whole sector of the commentariat that the way the way it deal part of its ritual for dealing with um, the daily awfulness to which we are now subjected is to chant, the adults will take care of it, the adults will take care of it. And then they don't and they chant it some more. It's it's like, you know, the issue on Sesame Street where uh, Bert puts the banana in his ear. Is it Bert who puts the banana in his ear? Um, Anyway, obviously, number one, and this shouldn't even need to be point out, pointed out, was the, uh, you know, the uh, the Navy got out there and condemned fascism, but all the generals in the White House and the administration couldn't get the president to condemn fascism. So that's point one. And point now, two, now, Heather, he condemned many sides involved in the violence. I mean, that includes fascism. Maybe that's the way to think of it. Thanks, Dan. Um, but, uh, for our purposes, um, moving, moving on from that, um, just having noted that these are the times in which we are living, uh, we also had the sort of ugly spectacle of the president's national security advisor going on television and asserting that North Korea is undeterrable. Not, I, I would say it was worse than that. So, so first of all, I think we need to, to step back. Because this past week, to be fair, has been a case in which the axis of adults has tried to rein in the president. It's just failed spectacularly. There's, there's been a cycle here, which is, you know, Trump makes some outrageous statement. Um, in this case, this all starts with the fire and fury comment um, about what uh, they will do in response to, uh, to North Korea. At which point, the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, says the one thing that I've actually approved of that he has said over the last six months, in which he basically says, look, we're going to try diplomacy. I think we really need to, to relax. Americans can sleep safely at night. Um, 
that was followed by Sebastian Gorka uh, claiming that no one should listen to the Secretary of State when it comes to these matters. And then Trump himself saying, um, I was probably too soft in my rhetoric in terms of fire and fury. We're now locked and loaded, which then led to Secretary of Defense James Mattis again coming out and saying, we really think diplomacy is working on this. We should absolutely give diplomacy a chance uh, because if we take the military option, it will be very, very bad. Um and then we, we segue into uh, the Sunday talk shows where you're right. H.R. McMaster said that North Korea is not deterrable for actually really dumb reasons. I cannot stress enough how bad that, that statement that McMaster made was. Because the question put to him was, why is North Korea not deterrable as opposed to, I don't know, Russia or China during the Cold War? And he explained that North Korea committed heinous acts and, and you know human rights abuses and, and starved its own people. Which, yeah, except that so did Maoist China and Stalinist Russia. The notion that somehow North Korea is uniquely awful, which is not in any way to mitigate their awfulness, but the notion that its regime is somehow worse than either Maoist China or Stalinist Russia or Soviet Union is insane. It actually is insane. It doesn't make any sense. I think we should note here that um, each uh, I would I would I would be fully in favor of giving each uh, authoritarian regime its own uniquely awful status. And that deterrence theory has nothing to do with how yeah. uniquely awful you are. And here, I really wish we had made graphics. Um, I really, you know, I don't, maybe our, maybe our blogging heads over. Okay, maybe I can, tr I'll try to do the graphics as you're speaking. So yeah, okay. I'll be so like the sign language. So let's go back and review. Okay, so, so there is a fundamental principle of deterrence theory, very easy to understand which is what does everybody care about more than anything else? Survival. So everybody, just like Dan in his library there, their first instinct is to protect what they have. And even if you are Stalin, Mao, or Kim Jong-un, or Donald Trump, can't quite do the hair. Go ahead. Keep on it. Um, you care about protecting regime survival is what you care about. And, you know, we love to say, oh, such and such regime is irrational and doesn't care about its own survival. But you really you can search the pages of history very hard before you find a regime leader that didn't actually care about its own survival. Dan, you've got that whole library there. Can we, I mean, in all seriousness, where in history can we point to, can we point to a leader who was actually suicidal? I mean, you have some who end up committing suicide, fair enough, and you have plenty who do things that are so stupid, you can look back and say, oh, that was all a big suicide plot. But I mean, we just, there's really good, nobody sets out and says, oh, the way I'm going to enjoy my autocratic power is to commit suicide and take a few million people with me. That's just not that's not what we know about how government and, and leaders work. That's basically true. The one the, the, the one caveat to this is you can argue that some leaders might be so irrational that they have they, they do want to survive. But their strategy for how they think they're going to win is truly blinkered. But in the sort of nuclear history, uh, that has never been the case. Um, and even Kim Jong Un. I think, does not display that kind of irrationality. And again, it's worth noting that both Mao and Stalin, leaders who were 
extremely paranoid and particularly in the case of, of Mao, you know, genuinely unbalanced at the end of things, uh, did not think, yes, you know, we should engage in nuclear brinksmanship. That's the way I will survive. Yeah, I think that, that I'll just throw in that Stalin was um, insane. I'm just going to go for it, insane enough toward the mm. end of his life to to, you know, decide that his doctors were trying to kill him and to sort of basically have every every doctor within close range yeah. um, arrested and shot. So so the bar for the bar for for mental illness being so high that you choose to launch a nuclear strike is is very high. So first point. Second point about deterrence um, is that it works it works best. It only works if you know what your opponent is going to do. If your if your signaling is very clear, that deterrence yes. is the opposite of the Donald Trump theory of real estate negotiations, which seems to be the, don't ever let them see you coming. Right, uh, which which leads to even more problems with the past week's worth of messaging because. While the president has sounded one thing, his policy subordinates have, have been all over the map uh, in terms of dealing with this kind of rhetoric. And, and you're right. I mean, this, and this is a problem that goes back to the campaign, his foreign policy thinking. And, and I've written Christ knows how much about this, and as have others, you know, pointing out that essentially Donald Trump's theory of foreign policy is that America has been too predictable. That, you know, he, he constantly says, why do we constantly say what we're going to do? and then do it. We're so stupid. We give away the game when we're communicating with adversaries, which there is a small sliver of, of, of foreign policy for which that is a valid critique, potentially. But for most of foreign policy, and particularly with respect to nuclear deterrence, almost the, the sort of cornerstone of all of it is the notion of credible commitment and clear signaling, which is to say, you do this and this will happen. And to do that, you actually need to be credible in terms of what you say. And so what worries me about the Trump administration is the degree to which, you know, as I've, I've said throughout all of 2017, Donald Trump, over this, as he's become president and, and throughout his presidency, has simultaneously become more predictable and less credible, which is to say he always makes bombastic threats and then almost never actually executes them, which means that if you're in the perspective of a foreign adversary, Trump threatening nuclear Armageddon or Trump threatening fire and fury doesn't necessarily count for much. And just to spell out why this matters. So the reason that you that you need to be super predictable and, and frankly, super clear in your assertiveness, nuclear nuclear deterrence is not an area where sort of necessarily um, soft peddling the destructive power you have is useful. You actually have to be super clear and say, these are the things that will lead me to launch. These are the things that would trigger, um, you know, some kind of whether conventional or nuclear attack. These are the things that we would consider acts of war. Um, so that, you know, the other side can, again, um, use whatever, uh, whatever it, it, thinks of as its rational process, and I'm not going to argue that that would look particularly rational to, to you or me, but to make sort of clear choices. And so then when the other side does something, you can then say, well, they knew that we would do X, and so we can have some insight into, into Y. And it's worth pointing out again, I mean, that this worked extremely well uh, not perfectly, and we had a number of close calls um, with uh, the Soviets in particular, but also with the Chinese. And 
in fact, one of the reasons that we survived all the close calls, all the times that flocks of birds triggered warnings or, you know, the time that the Soviet submarine lost touch with um, with Moscow and its commander decided to go ahead and launch and only the the number two on the boat deciding it would be a bad idea to launch saved all of us. But the existence of some predictability and some norms when you have a tense situation like that is what gives gives your decision makers the ability to say, hey, no, this doesn't fit with the observed pattern. Let's give it another 10 or 15 minutes, which is really what has made the difference in a, in a number of these of these close calls. So so you you are you are you you're you've set up this nuclear situation and you and you're we're systematically dismantling um, the best structure that that the world had come up with to deal with the threat of nuclear annihilation. But Dan, you know, you mentioning that it does seem like the, the president doesn't believe in, in deterrence. Um, we have to point out here that, that um, scholars have, have noted for years that the American people don't really believe in deterrence either, actually. And it, well, it may be, um, it's this, it has, at one level, it has, it has worked while it has to be said that publics don't believe in it, don't buy its logic and find it immoral, which, you know, let's be fair, it is immoral. I mean, it also is fair to note that Trump is not the first president to not believe in nuclear deterrence. Um, so we, we know that Trump, you know, uh, I think Joe Scarborough during the campaign talked about uh, how Trump really didn't seem to understand the doctrine of nuclear deterrence and basically saying, why can't we use these weapons and so on and so forth. Um, so, so Trump doesn't understand deterrence in the sense of he actually seems willing to, to contemplate their use. On the other hand, Ronald Reagan, when he was president, was, it seems, genuinely horrified by the prospect of nuclear weapons and really did think that nuclear deterrence was in and of itself um, an immoral position to hold. And to be fair, as you say, Heather, it is an immoral position to hold. It basically says you are holding the entire world hostage in order to be able to ensure some degree of stability. It says that if, if there is some red line that is crossed, it triggers Armageddon, and therefore let's not get close to that red line as, 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 as in any way whatsoever. Um, and you can argue that Reagan's belief about nuclear weapons simultaneously led him to pursue things like the Strategic Defense Initiative as a way to somehow get out of the logic of mutually assured destruction, but it also led him to embrace uh, arms control once Gorbachev came to power um, in the, the Soviet Union. Um, but that said, Reagan at least listen to his advisors on this. It, you know, he, he might not have liked nuclear deterrence, but I think he was uh, extremely reluctant to go against the wisdom of all of his advisors on this topic. Yep, and um, I think you also have to consider, you know, the difference between the size of the North Korean arsenal and the size of the Soviet arsenal during this period. Um, we had a spate of articles last week also um, about how North Korean nuclear weapons didn't really pose an existential threat to the U.S. And yes, it would be a bummer if one detonated somewhere, but um, it wouldn't actually destroy the society. And I, um, I had well, I had a whiplash here for two reasons. One is that I'm um, I'm old enough to remember uh, debates over limited nuclear war in the '80s, and um, I have to say I thought the folks who were pushing for the possibility and, and um, desirability of limited nuclear weapons, they were pretty decisively defeated in the 80s. So it is an interesting lesson that um, kind of no bad idea is ever really dead. But the other sort of <laughs> surreal 
surreal moment that I had was that um, the same part of the political spectrum who's been telling me that, you know, dudes who try to blow up a few dozen people with their shoes or their underwear are an existential threat to the United States of America are now telling me that a nuclear bomb that could kill thousands upon thousands of people and render areas uninhabitable for centuries is not an existential threat. So I, I felt kind of confused, but I feel that way a lot lately. Yes. Uh, modern geopolitics is, is, uh, is filled with this kind of confusion. And, and yeah, I, you know, I was in Japan last week, all of last week. Um, and I, I think the thing that I found striking when I was over there is I, I, as much as the, the, you know, the foreign policy community in the States was freaking out. I don't want to say that the Japanese were, you know, serene and calm about this, but they seem to be on a more even keel, perhaps, than um, than American commentators were. In no small part, perhaps because they've had to deal with the North Korean threat for, or it's been on their radar for a lot longer, I think, than it has been for the United States. Which is to say that, that you know, while certainly American presidents have had to deal with North Korea for 25, 30 years now, the notion that North Korean nuclear weapons could somehow hit American soil is a relatively recent um, epiphany, as it were. Whereas the Japanese, this has been something they've had to deal with for uh, a, a bit longer. So I have to ask, do you know that you were just quoting Tom Lehrer's Who's Next there, or did that happen by accident? Wait, what did I say? I, uh, I didn't know. I serene and calm. I believe the line is, we'll try to stay serene and calm when Alabama gets the bomb. <laughs> no, I did not realize I'd yeah, done that. Go, go look up the song, y'all, if you don't if you don't know it. Um. So as to why American commentators might be less calm than their than their Asian counterparts, we should we should now note that the um, the incoherence and in sniping um, wasn't was just on our policy with respect to a nuclear armed ally. It was on something much more uh, much more immediate. If something's more immediate than a nuclear armed opponent, and that's personnel policy. That we also spent um, we spent all of last week on. Uh, on um, H.R. McMaster Watch, and it looks, um, early indications are that we're going to spend all of this week on H.R. McMaster Watch as well, since we've we've now reached the the level of meta-ness in national security politics that not only is there a campaign to oust the national security advisor and a counter-campaign to point out that there's a campaign to oust the national security advisor, but you now have quote-unquote leaks on a Sunday informing chosen media outlets what the campaign to oust the national security advisor is going to look like this week. And I, for the life of me, can no longer tell which leaks are supposed to be undermining McMaster and which leaks are supposed to be undermining the people who are trying to undermine McMaster because it's just all so painful and ridiculous. So so it's worth pointing out two things. First, let, uh, first I don't think McMaster is the only name on the chopping block. Um, uh, coming from this past week. I mean, we're also hearing stories, at least I have, that, you know, Steve Bannon's uh, also in potential danger. Um, I think there, there are two stories that are worth noting. I think it was a political story that began on Saturday saying that, that, that the new chief of staff, John Kelly, is basically engaging in a uh, an exercise of, a sort of office space exercise of, what is it exactly that you do around here at the White House? Um, and if there is one thing that the Trump White House is filled with, it is senior advisors who don't have specific po policy portfolios. <coughs> Steve Bannon being one obvious example. 
but also Sebastian Gorka and Kellyanne Conway, um, and not to mention Jared Kushner. So one of the interesting things is whether there will be uh, further rationalizations in, in the, the bureaucracy will include those people uh, getting being eliminated. And I think the source of that is twofold. First, the notion that there are continued White House press leaks um, and that increasingly the source of them is being identified as Steve Bannon. That I, I believe that the link that's been identified is Steve Bannon to Mike Cernovich. Um, that has led to some significant leaks, actually, uh, in advance of, uh, coming out. And then, of course, there was the story in Axios late last night saying that the line of attack that will be put against uh, uh, the master this week is that he has a drinking problem, um, for which, let me be very clear, I have heard zero evidence to back up this assertion. Um, I'm not in that circle that would even necessarily have heard rumors, but I haven't heard a single iota of evidence backing this up at all. I don't know where this is coming from, um, but it is ugly to say the least. Well, it's uh, coming from Cernovich, A, and B, it was also pointed out that um, the, while, you know, no one, no one immediately popped up to tell Axios why, yes, this is something that others have heard of. What they did pop up to say is that um, because the president is a teetotaler, apparently he's particularly disapproving of others who can't, um, handle their their liquor so the idea is that this is a particular i feel like i'm discussing a game of thrones subplot here i have to say um but the the, the idea that this all like that you and i can sit here and discuss the antecedents of this attack before it's even really happened it's very and meta it's very meta and that you have a president who apparently doesn't care that his employees are squabbling in public but only cares sort of if you manage to, to continue to have bella figura while you do it. Um, I, well, the, the, the fascinating thing is, I, I think Trump said this over the, the past week. Again, this is one of the weird things about when you're overseas and trying to keep in touch with, with stuff. I believe Trump described two kinds of leaks that his, his administration has had to deal with. The first are the bad leaks, right? Those are the ones coming from the intelligence community and, and spilling national security secrets. Those are the leaks he disapproves of. And then he described the second set of leaks that were coming from aides who wanted to show oh, yes. their love for him. Did I did I understand that correctly? Yes, and they're just getting out there and just trying to show how much they love. Yeah, yeah. I I had um I had blotted that that out of my mind as that's no like doubt the, many of our listeners that, did. That's in the same vein of like the Vice story that that reveals that twice a day Trump gets a folder containing apparently all the available positive cryons, chirons and like headlines, and I swear to God, pictures of Trump looking like an adult, so that that somehow bolsters his incredibly fragile ego. And so back to our conversation earlier about the uniqueness or not uniqueness of, of authoritarian rulers, um, that is just so depressingly out of um, stuff that one reads in the literature about authoritarian rulers, and um, the even if your cult of personality is only internal. Um, but speaking of authoritarian rulers and things that happened in the last week that you'd sort of like to blot out and just pretend didn't happen, um, not content with um, promising fire, fury, and other alliterations against North Korea, um, the president then went on to threaten to use military force against Venezuela on, on Friday. Yes, um, which actually brings us back to, the I think, the original point you were trying to make, which is to say that you know, the president said this. No one else has said this. And indeed, you know that you've gone way over the line when even Lindsey Graham says 
why in the hell would we invade Venezuela? Um, you know, that would that would not that that's not uh, the right thing to do. And well, D, we think- were remarking just as we uh, just as we started this segment that um, it did um, it did trigger the son of the authoritarian president of Venezuela to threaten to um, to invade the White House if the U.S. invaded Venezuela. Which um, speaking of absurd Game of Thrones subplots. Yes. Yes. Which, which, I mean, I would, it sort of, it made me, I think this was your suggestion actually, that we let this gentleman and Jared be in a room together and Jared or or Eric. No, no, I had Donald, I had Don Jr. is the one who would, who would fight him to say the truth. So anyway, we let a Maduro offspring and a Trump offspring settle this mano a mano. So what I think is interesting about this, and again, it reflects some, some genuine, I have, I have genuine, genuinely ambivalent feelings about this. The fact is, is that the military then sent out, I think there was a news story in response to this, where the military said, we have no plans, there's no change in tempo with respect to Venezuela, we're not doing anything that would remotely resemble an invasion of, of Venezuela. Which, by the way, is consistent with other statements that the military has made and the Pentagon has made over the past week on two other issues. Uh, the first is North Korea, where they have also said we're not stepping up you know, operations with the idea of launching a preemptive attack. Um, and the third thing is on the transgender ban, where the military has been very explicit, saying we don't care what the president has tweeted. All we know is that we're implementing the status quo policy until we get an explicit order coming from the White House. And indeed, I believe the Secretary of the Navy actually said publicly, if Trump were to do that, it would be a mistake, um, which is... So the transgender ban um, is a is a really um, disgusting, but also interesting and important e- example of, of how, how everybody's struggling with this question of... You've just uh, captured 2017 with a great motto, disgusting, but interesting. Go ahead. Yeah. So you could see on the on the morning that Trump did the tweeting, um, you could see the Pentagon struggling with, on the one hand, um, this is ridiculous. It probably wouldn't stand up in court. It's appalling for morale, the idea that we would root out people who are serving and um, honorably and well and Although kick I, them out. We have to take a moment of silence. My favorite part about that morning was the eight-minute gap between Trump's first tweet in which he said, I've consulted my military advisors and dot, 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 and then, like the entire world had to wait to see what, where, you know, where that ellipsis was going. And my understanding is it freaked out the Pentagon as well. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so you can't. I mean, and 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 I, I do. I give the folks at the Pentagon a lot of credit for this. You, you really don't want to live in the in a world where the commander in chief says something and the Pentagon ignores it. Right. Um, that's that is that's not and okay. That, and that's why. I mean, and we've had this experience before where. We might have had commander in chiefs we don't like, but if military subordinates act in an insubordinate fashion, they actually do have to be fired. I mean, that that you know that kind of violates the chain of command. Yeah, and you really, re- I mean, this is in in a way because this norm is holding so far. It's it highlights the you know the extent to which just someone who's determined and doesn't care about nicety, you know, doesn't care about anything until you come get him. Um, is is just trashing other norms of how how government functions. But the Pentagon, you know, sort of laid down a line and said, we will wait to get yeah. um, a policy direct. You know, we are the, the the president has not sent us formal policy guidance and we'll be waiting for that. What what people need do need to understand about the the, the transgender ban is that 
the White House did move on and start trying to to submit to do that policy guidance. Um, oh, and it's did clear, they? This is the part where it's been unclear to me. Yeah, so it's been it's been reported that um, that they were working on it within the White House, um, and and that there's been pushback both from um, the Pentagon and Pentagon lawyers and from White House lawyers, but hmm. that. Um, Nonetheless, the, the White House has continued to push forward, um, and it's been unclear, um, again, because I think the White House keeps trying to do things and keeps getting told, well, that's actually not legal, that won't stand up in court, um, and or the Pentagon just flat out doesn't want to do it. Um, and so you've had this this interregnum where everybody knows that um, that there's this arm wrestle over the White House trying to impose this policy, which the Pentagon doesn't want. Um, and then um, various folks inside the Pentagon, as you pointed out, the Secretary of the Navy and, and others um, trying to stake out stake out territory. Uh, meanwhile, a couple of nonprofit organizations preemptively filed lawsuits, um, just basically trying to make it as difficult as possible. And um, Mattis, I think, basically tried to, uh, to uh, make a little lemonade out of the very big lemon of last week by saying, well, obviously all kinds of personnel reform are off the table while we're dealing with North Korea. Now, ah. what I what I haven't seen is anyone from the White House say, yes, this is off the table and we're not pushing it anymore. But I think um, I think that was there. That was Mattis finding a way of saying, you know, I'm not going to be insubordinate. I'm not going to do you the favor of being insubordinate, but you're not going to try to push this on me now. That would that would make some sense. I, I guess the the macro point here is the very fact that the military, there's been a number of issues on which Trump has said one thing, and then when the press has gone to DOD for clarification, it would be safe to say that I neither, neither the civilian nor the military parts of the Pentagon have been on the same page as Donald Trump. Now, on each of these issues, I am completely on team Pentagon because, you know, by and large, they're, they're, they sound far more sensible on a whole variety, you know, on North Korea, on Venezuela and on transgender. The DOD makes sense to me. Trump does not. That said, there is a small part of me that is extremely bothered by this dynamic yep. because mm -hmm. at some point you need if the president says jump. The military does need to say how high. Now, there are certain orders for which I would not want the military to say how high. I would want the military to say, no, we're not going to do that. Um, but, you know, to go back to our prior conversation, when it, you know, when it comes to issues on crisis bargaining and, and both nuclear and conventional deterrence, you need the president of the United States to have credibility when he makes threats. And none of what has happened in the past week has has bolstered the president's credibility. It's done the exact opposite. Um, and this is what I find disconcerting on many levels. Well, one more point on the Civ Mill that I think yeah. one has to make and that uh, that uh, Stanford's Corey Shockey is, is very good about pointing out in these situations. Um, the bar for refusing an illegal order is very high. Um, there are a whole, you can get a stupid order as a, a person in uniform, and you have to carry out a stupid order. Um, you can get a stupid order that is very likely to lead to your own death, and you have to carry it out. Um, that's that's part of the nature of, of what it means to, to have an armed service and to, to sign up for it. So, um, you know, and, and, and it's not, um, I regret to say, it's not illegal um, under U.S. law for the president to, um, you know, decide to go to war in Venezuela. 
Um, now I hear I hear the screams from the audience saying, "Yes, it is illegal authorization for use of military force, war powers." Um, but ultimately, sorry, folks, um, the the law on that is confused enough that no court is ever going to say that the president doesn't have the right to declare war anytime he feels like it. Um, I, again, I don't feel good about it, but that's where the law is. Yeah. No, so it, it again, I'm in this, you know, we're in this weird situation where simultaneously I don't trust the president to handle these crises terribly well. And yet the president, in the way that he has handled it, has actually eroded his ability to handle further crises. Um, and so this is problem. This is all just very problematic and does not seem to be going away anytime soon. Um, my only hope is that essentially, and it is worth remembering that is even as bad as the North Korea situation is, the reason everyone went, pardon the pun, ballistic last week had less to do with North Korea and everything to do with Donald Trump's rhetoric. You know, had Trump gone out and just sort of said, you know, provided more sort of steely resolve rather than the fire and fury comment that he clearly had wanted to say for quite some time, um, I don't think people would have been as freaked out last week as they actually were. Well, and also, if we were in a less hyped, um, a less amped up communications environment, and we had a coherent policy process, um, you would have heard that the DIA view that those reports were based on is not the consensus view of the intelligence community or of um, the sort of North Korea analyst community, that folks, folks do not think that the North Koreans could actually launch a functioning intercontinental ballistic missile with a miniaturized weapon and have it get here and explode. Which doesn't mean they aren't going to be able to do it soon. It right. doesn't no, this mean, is... it doesn't mean, I mean, it, North Korea is a huge problem, yeah. but the degree of panic about, oh, you know, is there going to be nuclear war this weekend? No, there's not, because yeah. the North Koreans can't launch the things yet. Well, and this also leads to another question, which... It... I, I, I mean, my my first book talked about North Korea. So, you know, I've been paying attention to this for about 20 years now. And for all the talk by the Trump administration of, you know, we're going to do foreign policy differently. Am I crazy or is there simply, you know, North Korea is the ultimate foreign policy problem, which is to say that every policy option in your arsenal stinks. This is all about choosing the least bad option. And I cannot see a a better bad option than whatever the status quo is, I guess. Um, well, actually, um, I do think there's a better bad option than the status quo. And it's been um, it's been proposed in recent days by everybody from former Secretary Perry to uh, former Secretary Kissinger to crazy left wingers. Um, so you sort of have the full the full spectrum saying, you know, we are going to have to negotiate with the North Koreans. There right. seem to be things that the North Koreans want. Um, and actually, you know, the funny thing is the things that the North Koreans want are things that in substance, it wouldn't be terribly difficult to give them. What's terribly difficult, and this, funnily enough, we sort of loop back to our original conversation about deterrence and whether it works. Um, arguably, the thing that has in the past prevented um, the people who, who should have known better, honestly, um, such as the Obama administration and the Bush administration before it, from being willing to engage in negotiations with, with the North Koreans is this, this feeling that negotiating with them rewards them for bad right. behavior. Yeah. 
And, you know, sadly, um, as, as the parent of a teenager, I'm all about not rewarding bad behavior. But at a certain point when you're dealing with a nuclear armed state, the teenager analogy is no longer the relevant one. Right. Um, no, and I would agree with that. I would agree with that sentiment. And again, it is worth pointing out, I, I always feel like compelled to do this, that the Trump administration has many crises of their own making. North Korea is not really one of them. This is something they inherited. This is something that, that President Obama told President Trump in their first meeting. This is going to be the first, you know, at the top of your foreign policy queue. Um, and this represents not just, you know, seven months of policy failure, but rather <coughs> two decades of it. And so, but you're correct that I think, you know, as I understand it, the, the, the stabilizing move is to propose that North Korea cease all missile and nuclear tests and in turn, the United States and South Korea cease all military exercises, or at least large-scale military exercises. There is that one, and then there are some other sort of, there are some other elements in the mix as far as would the U.S. say and to whom would the U.S. say that our goal is not regime change? Right. Um, which, again, it really shouldn't cost you very much to be able to say that. Um, it would cost Trump, though, because, I mean, in some ways, the, the, look, if there is a blueprint for how this should end, it would be paradoxically the deal that he hates the most, which is the Iran deal. Um, you know, the reason the Iran deal worked, the only reason you got to the Iran deal, and, and here the Obama administration does deserve credit, is that they finally made it clear at some point that the goal was not necessarily regime change that they were willing to do business with the regime in power in Tehran and that there would be an explicit, you know, agreement on nuclear weapons with the idea that this was not necessarily going to translate into anything more grandiose than that. Um, which is why whenever the Trump administration says that, you know, Iran has violated the spirit of the Iran deal, I never entirely understand what they mean by that. Um, but anyway, you, you would have to pursue the same kind of logic with respect to North Korea. And by the way, it is pointing out that weirdly, I think every major player in the region would actually be willing to live with some sort of guaranteed existence, continued existence of North Korea. Um, China certainly wants a continued North Korea. That's the whole reason why they're acting the way they want, uh, why the way, way they are. Um, and South Korea, I think, weirdly enough, actually wants a continued North Korea because they don't want to have to shoulder the burden of reunification anymore. Uh, and so, yeah, that is that is sort of the dirty little secret of all of this. That um, that it, it. I mean, look, let's let's. I mean, the North Korean regime is disgusting, and if we were acting, if we were able to act from a sort of very on paper moralistic perspective, it should go away. Sure. But um, nobody sees a way of making it go away that doesn't produce even more misery than the misery it is currently producing. Um, one other thing I wanted to, to inject here um, is that, um, yes, the North Koreans cheat. Yes, the North Koreans have violated just about every agreement they've ever signed. That is why you've got to use the Iran deal model with really, really strenuous verification and not be naive. Um, because both it is the case that the North Koreans cheat and it is the case that when you have them negotiating and when you have them in 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 a, an agreement framework, the pace of their proliferation slowed down. Yes. And when they weren't in any agreement, the Everything pace of their accelerated. proliferation accelerated. And wouldn't it be nice if the pace of their proliferation had slowed the hell back down? So 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 
you know, I, I think um, it's really important to when you start start talking about negotiating with the North, you know, no, this is not um, this isn't the Boy Scouts. And, you know, you, you go in knowing that. And if if this administration with its its deal maker in chief and its, you know, sort of assemblage of, of hairy chested he men, if those folks can't bring themselves to 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 negotiate with someone who's going to, you know, going to cheat and, and be confident that it doesn't doesn't affect their masculinity in any way, then I don't know what they're good for. But I don't know what they're good for anyway. I think that might be a good closing note for our <laughs> dialogue. Um, Heather, always a pleasure. Yes, this seems like a good moment to apologize because I, I think our sound wizards won't quite be able to, to edit out the sounds of the drills, the drills in the background um, as we build as we build the uh, the silent chamber where I can go and, and hide from the whole world. So, I um, like the idea of a foreign policy panic room. I think every foreign policy wonk needs this for, you know, beginning in 2017. Just to, like, you know, a thing where we can, like, you know, go in and be totally shut out from, from, from the rest of the world and not have to follow events for, like, a couple of hours. I was going to say, I feel like the whole world is my panic room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. All well, right. enjoy the dog days of August, and uh, I will see you next month. Likewise. Thanks for listening to Blogging Heads TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Blogging Heads episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at bloggingheads.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.